Today I'm continuing a series that I've started teaching through the book of Romans. And we're now up to Romans chapter 7 verse 1. We've already covered a lot of material. There's no way that I can summarize everything. But Paul is teaching about the grace of God. This is his masterpiece on the subject. And in Romans chapter 6, he came to this point of... He had made the point that God relates to us based on grace, not based on our performance. And it was such a strong, powerful point that in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, he says, does this mean that we can just live in sin? Of course, the answer to that is absolutely not. God forbid... And he gave two reasons. The first reason was that we are dead to sin. And here I am starting into Romans chapter 7, but it is based upon everything that we've already discussed, primarily this truth about that we are dead to sin. So in Romans chapter 7 verse 1, he says, uh, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another. Now, what he's talking about right here is, he starts in verse 1 by saying, that you are dead to the law, and the law no longer has any dominion over you. And the law here is referencing the performance-based relationship with God that was dictated under the Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament law, you had to do all of these things and live holy, and if you messed up, then you had to offer a sacrifice for every sin that you committed. That was the only exception. It was basically your relationship with God was based on your performance. And if you didn't do everything right, well, then you had to go through all of the ritual cleansings and sacrifices and things like this. But your God's acceptance of you was based on your performance. In the New Testament, we are free from that law. Our relationship with God is not based on our performance. It's based on what Jesus did. And when I say this, people who've been raised in religion as I was, they just really get upset with this because, again, they feel like that this is against all of the principle of the Word of God because they have been steeped in the Old Testament law way of doing things. And there is a new covenant. That's the reason that the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Most Christians just believe that the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is one blank page in your Bible. But it is a new covenant. It is a new contract. It is a new way of God dealing with us. And as long as you try and relate to God under the old contract, you aren't going to experience all of the benefits and the wonderful blessings that come through Jesus Christ in the new contract. And I tell you, most people haven't understood this. So after he said all of these things about your old sin nature is dead, you are now freed from that sin nature, you have a brand new nature that is in right standing with God, and you are a new person. John 4, 24, God is a spirit and God sees you in the spirit and he relates to you based on who you are in the spirit. And so under the new covenant, it's just a totally new relationship. And the benefits of that are that you are now dead 
to the law, the law doesn't have any dominion over you. And to illustrate it, he draws on the marriage relationship. Now, let me just say a couple of things because our marriage relationship has evolved a lot from the days when Paul wrote this. You know, Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to women. You talk about the women's liberation movement. Jesus liberated women. Prior to the time of Jesus, women were basically the property of a man. In the Old Testament, women could not sue for divorce. Men could divorce women, but women had no rights. They were basically the property of men. And this was part of the curse that was placed upon the woman in the Garden of Eden. And under the Old Testament law, the women were basically property. They couldn't work. They couldn't do a lot of things. Now, there were some accommodations that the Lord made for them, and you can find examples of that. But as a whole, women did not have the freedom to divorce and do things like that. And you've got to remember this because the points that he's making right here, he says that the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as the husband lives. The only way that a woman could be free from that marriage relationship was for her husband to die. And when the husband died, then the law no longer had any restrictions over her. She was completely free to go and remarry because the old man was dead. And he's making a comparison here that as long as you think that your old man, your old sin nature is still alive, then the law is going to dominate you because the law was given to restrict and to reveal and expose this old sinful nature on the inside of us. You know, I've already said some of these things, but let me just summarize that the law was given 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve. If the law would have been God's number one way that He wanted to communicate with us and reveal Himself to us, He would have just given the law to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because they were talking to Him, you know, uh, in an audible voice. God was manifesting Himself. He could have given them the law right then. Why did He wait 2,000 years to give the law through Moses? Because He didn't want to give the law. He didn't want to show us our sinfulness and our unworthiness because it would make us guilty, Condemnation kills, Second Corinthians chapter 3. It drives people away. When you feel that somebody is disappointed with you, you don't like to go and hang out with that kind of person. You know, I remember one time that I owed a woman money. She was my landlord. She was the president of the bank. And I was behind on my rent. This is when Jamie and I were in our poverty days. And I went to her the very day that the rent was due. And I told her, I said, look, I am not trying to escape this. I am going to pay you, but I just don't have it today. And she was as nice to me as she could be. And she says, I know you'll pay it. Don't worry about it. You just pay me when you can. So there, she was nice. It wasn't her, but because I owed her money and I didn't have the money to pay, I felt shame. I felt guilt. And I remember walking down the street in Seagaville, Texas, and seeing this woman come. And I ducked into this uh, Western Auto store and started looking around like I was going to buy something. I didn't have a penny in my pocket. I couldn't have bought anything. And yet I was, in a sense, hiding from this woman. And it wasn't because she had treated me badly. It was because I knew that I owed her something that I couldn't pay. And I felt guilt and I felt shame and I avoided her. 
And there was no reason for me to do it except the shame and guilt. See, this is what condemnation and guilt does. It drives people from God. This is why so many people don't really come to God and spend time. It's why most people look at studying the Word and praying. They don't enjoy that as much as they enjoy a football game or your sports games. And some of you are saying, man, what a comparison. But, you know, it's, it's true. If, you, if they were to come on during every commercial during the football game and say, you sorry thing, you could be praying. You could be studying the Word. You aren't doing what you're supposed to do. Have you treated people right? Have you done this? And if they were to just start condemning you and showing you all of the things that you've done wrong, whether they were right or not, would you watch the football game if every commercial was like that? And I believe that the answer is no. You know what? You wouldn't enjoy that. But instead, they come on with these commercials. And when they're trying to sell you beer, instead of showing you a person laying in the gutter who's just puked all over himself and lost his whole family and his kids hate him and he's just struggling and he's poor and he can't make it, instead of showing you the real finished product of the brewer's art, they'll show you these beautiful Clydesdales going through the snow. And they'll show you all these beautiful things that make you feel good. You know, advertising has learned this, that if you were to condemn people and say, you buy this product or we're going to have to lay off 10,000 people, you sorry thing, you're a part of the problem. You know, if they came across on television like that, people wouldn't buy their product. They would associate it with shame and stuff. Well, in a sense, this is what the Old Testament law did. And God did not want us to know how condemned we were and how short we had come. And so that's the reason that for 2,000 years he related to mankind without a law showing them how sinful they were. But men begin to take God's lack of punishment and lack of rejection because of their actions as acceptance. And they begin to think there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. There's nothing wrong with murder. There's nothing wrong with adultery. There's nothing wrong with all of these things. And so they just were giving themselves to this sin. And even though God wasn't bringing His judgment upon our sin, Satan was gaining access to the human race through sin. And man's lifespan decreased from 969 years is how long Methuselah lived down to during the days of Abraham. It had decreased down to 175 years old is how long Abraham lived. And the Bible says he was an old man and full of days. So in his days, which was just, I don't know, it was only uh, like 1,800 years after the fall of Adam, the lifespan had decreased by something like 700 years or more than that. It would be nearly 800 years. And sin was destroying mankind. Even though God wasn't bringing His judgment and condemnation, Satan was gaining access to us through our sin. And so, even though God did not want us to feel condemned, He gave the law for people with a sinful human nature. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It talks about that the law wasn't made for a righteous man, but for the lawless for the disobedient, etc. We become righteous through Jesus. The law wasn't made for people who are born again. It wasn't made for the New Testament saint, but it was made for people who did not have this new spirit. They weren't born again. It was given to reveal to them how sinful they were, how far short of God's standard they were, and it made sin come alive. Instead of freeing you from sin, it actually put you under bondage. It brought condemnation, shame, and guilt. And did you know that there was a time and a place for that? 
A person who does not recognize that they need God's salvation, first of all, has to see their relative unworthiness so that they will come to the Lord and say, God, I can't save myself. See, there's a lot of religion today that is saying, well, you just be good, and if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll get in. That is not true. Because God doesn't grade on a curve. It doesn't matter if you're better than I am or you're better than somebody else. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the truth is that every single person, I don't care if you're a good sinner or a bad sinner. I don't care if you are the worst person or the best sinner that's ever lived. You have come short of the glory of God, which is Jesus, and you need salvation. And so the very first thing you've got to do before you can receive that salvation is admit your need. So the law was given to show us our unworthiness, and it was given for people who were not born again to bring shame, guilt, condemnation. I've already used scriptures in this series to show all of those things. And see, the law was given for that old man. But here's what he's saying, that if the old man is dead, now the law has no control over you. The same way that a woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as the husband is alive. But if the husband is dead, then that woman is completely free. She can go out and have a physical relationship, be married to another man, and there is no condemnation, there is no guilt, there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Now again, this comparison might lose some of its impact today because our standards have decreased so much that people just, you know, divorce and remarry for any reason and stuff. But in the day that this was written, if you were a woman and you were married to a man, you could not get out of that marriage. You could not divorce the man. The only thing that could free you from that marriage was the death of your husband. And likewise, the only thing that frees us from the Old Testament law and all of the guilt and the condemnation and the shame that goes with it is the death to our old man. If you don't understand that your old man is dead and gone, then you will still be married to that law. You will still come under the guilt and the shame. And every time you do something wrong and fall short, you will come and say, Oh God, how could you love me? And you will feel God's rejection and wrath. Not because He's given it, but because you have this law mentality. And this is the point that He's trying to get across. He used this example in the same way that a woman cannot go out and have a physical relationship. She cannot be married to a second man without it being adultery. Unless her first husband dies, then she is free to be married to another. He uses this comparison and he says in the next verse, in verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so he's using this as a comparison, that we have died to that old man. Well, likewise, the law only had effect over a person until they get born again. But once you're born again, your old man dies, and you are now free to be married to another, which is Christ. And in verse 5, it says, For when you were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law 
did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. There are many scriptures, many scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And then these verses here in Romans chapter 7 are all showing that the law did not free us from sin, but it actually made sin have dominion over us. The law empowered sin that old sinful nature, it did not empower you, your body and your soul, to be free from the sinful nature. But what it did, it brought out the bondage that was on the inside of us. And there was a purpose for that, to show us that we couldn't save ourselves, that we needed salvation. So the law wasn't sin. He's going to answer this exact question right here in these verses. The law wasn't sin, but we were sin. We were bound and defeated by sin and we needed to recognize that we couldn't save ourselves. And so the law, it says right here, the motions of sin which were by the law did did bring forth fruit unto death. The law actually gave motion, traction to sin. It gave sin dominion over you. I just don't have the words to explain this, but I've meditated on this so much. I understand the concept. That when you show a person what a sinner they are, and sometimes it's necessary to bring people out of this deception that I'm really good, I'm good enough that my works are going to be okay, and God's going to accept me because I'm such a good person. If a person thinks that, then you've got to use the law on them. And I understand that. But even though it does accomplish one good thing, and that is that it takes away this self-righteousness your self-deception, and it shows you your need for a Savior. Once you come to God and accept salvation on the basis of grace, through faith in what Jesus did, then the law ceases to be a good thing for the New Testament believer. And all it does is continue to shame you and condemn you and make you feel separated from God. It actually works against relationship with God for the New Testament believer. It's like, you know, here's the point that you've got to reach before you will get rid of your self-righteousness and accept God. And if a person is over here in just total self-righteousness and deception, then the law is good because it can bring them to this place where they need to receive their salvation. But then from here on, the law is not good. It's going to only bring you back to your need for salvation. It's never going to let you progress beyond that. You're never going to get to a place to where you can enter in and enjoy the true blessing and pleasures and benefits of your salvation because you're going to feel constantly condemned and unworthy. The law is just it, the law will not show you one good thing. It'll never give you a compliment. The law will never say you're doing better. The law will only show you a standard of perfection and I guarantee you, even after you're born again, you become perfect in your spirit, but your flesh, your body and your soul are still not going to be perfect. They will come short and the law will never tell you, hey, you're doing better than you used to do. No, it'll only show you you're still falling short. You still missed it. If you do 99.9 things right, the law will show you the one-tenth that you missed. It'll point out everything that's wrong in you. So it will bring you to this point to where you need salvation and you need a Savior, but it'll never let you go on in to the deeper, greater things of God. The law actually 
empowered sin. It gave motion to sin is what it says right here. And it brought forth fruit unto death. And so it goes on to say in verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held. Talking about our old man, our old nature is gone. The law was only given for people who had a nature that was sinful and separated from God. Once you get born again and receive the righteous, holy nature that is available through Jesus, it's not for us. And so we are delivered from the law because that old sin nature is dead and gone. Again, I could stop right here and go back and preach Romans chapter 6 all over again because the average religious person still believes that they have a sinful nature and they have a new nature, they have a dual nature, they're schizophrenic, and that is wrong. That is not what Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 are saying. You are dead to that old sinful nature. Therefore, the law that was given to regulate and to bring out the filth and corruption that was in your sinful nature is no longer applicable to you. Man, that is a radical, radical statement. And I know that there's people all over the world that just think I'm a heretic. I've read a few of those little blogs and and these are some of the issues right here that people think are terrible. But I'm saying exactly what the Bible says. This is the new covenant. We are not under that law anymore. So in verse 6 again, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that's talking about that old sinful nature, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And this is the exact terminology that was used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, that says we are ministers of the New Testament and not of the letter of the law. The New Testament is referring to this new covenant that we have, the new relationship that we have with God through Jesus, and the letter is talking about the Old Testament law. All of the details, dotting every I, crossing every T, doing everything perfect. We are delivered from the oldness of the letter. In verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Now, see, there's some of you that have been listening to what I've been saying and talking about the negative effects that the law has on the New Testament believer, and you come to the conclusion, well, Andrew says that the law is sin. Andrew says that we aren't supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. Andrew is against the law, and there's people that say those things. Well, they said the same thing about Paul. He's answering their question. He's anticipating that there's going to be some people, because of his statements here, saying, well, is the law sin? And his answer is, God forbid. Likewise, I say, God forbid. The law is not sin. And he goes on to say, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So in other words, the law isn't sin. All the law did was reveal the sin that was inside of us. We wouldn't have known sin. We wouldn't have known right and wrong if it wasn't for God's standard of the law. And then he says in verse 8, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Again, this is the same point that was made up here in verse 5, that the motions of sin which were by the law. This is saying that sin took occasion by the commandment and wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. You know, here's another concept 
that most people don't think about this, and it may seem counterintuitive, but this is what this is trying to bring out right here, that if you tell somebody you can't do it, there's something. God created us in a way to be free. There is a, you know, the founding fathers of the, uh, of the United States of America, they believe this, that all men were created equal and that there is inside of us this desire for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a God-given thing. They were reflecting this same principle right here, that God created us to be free and not to be ruled over by laws and restrictions. And so when you tell a person, you can't do this, there is something, I believe, God-given on the inside of every person that just says, bless God, I'm going to do it. There is something in us that resists all of these rules and regulations and being told that you can't do it. You know, I've given examples on this before, but, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, even little kids understand this. I remember as a little kid, you'd try and get somebody to do something, and if they wouldn't do it, you say, I dare you. You can't do it. I dare you. If you can do it, well, then prove it. You know what you're doing basically is saying, you can't, thou shalt not do it. And there's something on the inside of people that when you say, you shall not, there's something that just rises up and says, bless God, I shall. Amen. That's what this is talking about. Sin was dead until the law was given, but the law made sin come alive. And it made you die in your emotions and in your physical body. You begin to start experiencing the death, the shame, and the guilt. I had a preacher one time who was listening to my teaching on this very subject through the book of Romans. And he was in his study. And it just became a revelation. The Holy Spirit gave him revelation of what I was talking about. And he saw it. And he looked out his window and his son was out in the backyard playing with a group of his friends. And he thought, I'm going to put this to the test. And so he just walked out to the back door of his house, called all of the kids over to the back door. And he says, you know, you're doing great. You're playing fine. Everything's good. But whatever you do, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And he pointed at a flower right outside the window of his study. And he said, you shall not spit on this flower. And then he walked back in the house and looked through the window. And he said that those kids had been out there for an hour and they didn't even notice that flower. Nobody was even aware that that flower existed until he said, thou shalt not spit on it. And he said half of the kids walked over there and spit on that flower immediately. And the other half sat there and looked at it, their mouth drooling, wishing that they could spit on it, but afraid uh, of the consequences. But See, nobody even noticed that flower until there's a command, thou shalt not do it. And then the moment you do that, something says, bless God, I shall. This is just human nature. It's the way that God created us to be. And the law magnified this. The law came along and told people, you know, you shall not commit adultery. If you want to see a rash of people having sexual sins, start preaching real strong against adultery and saying, God's angry. God's going to judge you. You shall not do this. Now, there's a place to talk about the consequences of your actions and tell people that this is not good. You're giving place to the devil. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your mate. You're going to open yourself to sexually transmitted diseases. There's a, there's a place for saying all of those things. But I'm saying when you start preaching the law, thou shalt not do it. God's angry. 
There is something inside of people that if you preach against it, you're going to have people do the very thing that you command them not to do. The law makes sin come alive. Sin is really powerless. Now, it does. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And whether a person knows the law or not, if they have sinned, which all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, then there is going to be an eternal punishment and judgment for that sin if they don't accept God. And so I'm not saying that there are zero consequences, but I'm saying even when God isn't releasing His judgment on sin, sin is still an inroad of Satan into your life, and so it's to be avoided. But when the law came, it made sin multiply. It made sin come alive, and it gave sin dominion over us. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If you are under the law and not under grace, then sin will have dominion over you. And there are many of you that don't realize it. You are trying your best to adhere to all of the commands of the Old Testament law and you're thinking, God, I'm doing better. Now is it good enough? And you are just focused on all of your failures, trying to perfect every little thing on the inside of you. And without realizing it, you are causing sin to come alive on the inside of you. You are giving sin dominion over you. That's what these verses are saying. And I know that to some of you this is counterintuitive, but it is the truth. Let me go back and read this verse again. It says in verse 8, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Man, that is... Amazing passage. There is a great truth here that I really do not want to take time to teach on, but this is amazing. Let me just real quickly say this, that some people think that, you know, a child is born with a sin nature, and I agree with that. But look what this says. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What this is talking about is that all of us are born with a sin nature, but a Sin is not imputed where there is no law. I've already used that verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 13. And so a little child, even though they have a sin nature, that nature is not imputed or held against them until the law comes to them. This is what some people call the age of accountability. You know, a two-year-old child is not accountable they are, does that mean that they aren't a sinner? No, you can see that a two-year-old child has that sin nature. They're selfish. They will be bitter. They'll pout. They'll hurt people. They'll do things. Uh, they have a sin nature, and it's reflected in their life, but it's not held against them. If a child was to die before they know right and wrong, then they would go into the presence of the Lord. And you can see that in second. Samuel chapter 12 where David talked about the, his child that died and he says, I will go be with him, but he will not come back to me. And that was not talking about David going to hell. He was going to go into the presence of God. So that child was in the presence of God. An infant that dies goes into the presence of God even though they were born with a sin nature. That sin nature isn't imputed unto him. That's what Paul was saying. I was alive without the law once. When he was a child, he was alive to God. A child can communicate with God even though they haven't been born again 
even though they haven't purged themselves, even though they've still got this sinful nature, a child can be sensitive to God. They are alive to God because that sin, sin nature, is not being imputed unto them. But when the law comes, then sin revives. Notice it didn't say sin comes. Sin was already present. It just revives. It comes alive and that person dies. When a child reaches a place that they understand, I am not just disobeying mom and dad. I am not just doing something wrong contrary to what they said at school or this or that, but I am sinning against God. I know this is wrong, God. I know you don't want me to do it, and I'll do it anyway. I am God. I will exalt myself. The moment a child does that, which is, again, referred to as an age of accountability, and some people have tried to fix an age to it. I don't think you can do that. I think some people with mental disabilities could be 30 or 40 years old and still not come to that place. But whenever a person comes to this place where they know that they are transgressing the law of God, then sin revives and that sinful nature causes them to die and be separated from God. That's what Paul is talking about. But notice that it says that the law made sin revive, come alive, and you die. And look at this in verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. You know what this is saying is that the commandment was perfect. He's going to say this in just the next few verses, that the commandment was perfect. And if any person could have kept the commands perfectly, and again, God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not you do 900 out of 950 commands and you get an A and you get accepted. No, you have to do 100%. And if you miss in the slightest detail, you get an F. You fail. You flunk. That's the way that the law worked. There was no such thing as making an A or B or a C, but D is failing. Everybody failed. Everybody came short of God's standard of holiness, Romans 3.23. And so this says that the commandment which was ordained to life, if you could have kept it, then you could have earned relationship with God. But nobody ever kept the law except one person, and that's Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. So Jesus was God, but as a man, as a God-man, He kept the law perfectly and He deserved right standing with God. He earned it. Nobody else could ever approach God on the basis of their goodness and their holiness. Jesus is the only one who did it. So the law, it was ordained unto life, but I found it to be unto death. Because if you don't keep it perfectly, then instead of the life coming, Death comes. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 1 through 14, it gives all of the blessings that will come upon you if you keep the law. But then in verses 15 through 68, it gives all of the curses that come upon you if you don't keep the law. And for those of you that were any good at math, you might be able to recognize that verses 15 through 68 is a lot more numerous in verses 1 through 14, there's more curses than there were blessings. Plus, look at this in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. It says, It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God shall set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if, that word if is huge, it's only two letters, but it's huge. If thou shalt 
hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. All of these blessings were conditional on you keeping all of the commandments. Look in verse 28, verse one, chapter 28, verse 1 again. It says, you have to hearken unto the Lord your God to observe and to do all His commandments. Did you know in the Hebrew right there, that word all, you know what that means? It means all. Amen. It means 100%. It means you can't make it just doing better than somebody else or better than you've ever done. You've got to keep every single commandment. And if you don't, then instead of verses 1 through 14, you get verses 15 through 68. All of the curses, all of the rejection and the punishment. And I've actually heard New Testament Christian preachers preach on these verses and say that the reason you aren't enjoying the blessings of God is because you hadn't hearkened diligently to observe to do all the commandments. So what you've got to do, if you've been having 15 minutes a day uh, devotional time, and if you've been praying and going to church and paying the tithes, what you need to do is increase. You've got to do 30 minutes a day. You've got to go to church one more time a week. You've got to start giving 15% instead of 10%. You do more, and if you aren't seeing the blessings, just try harder. Do more. Basically, that's what religion is preaching. I'm telling you that these verses say you have to hearken to do all of the commands in order to get the blessings. And so somebody's saying, well then, how are any of us ever going to get it? Here's the way that the New Testament believer should read these verses. You have to interpret the Old Covenant in light of the New Covenant. Here's the way that a New Testament believer should read this. And it is coming to pass... Since Jesus hearkened diligently unto the voice of the Lord his God to observe and to do all of the commandments which he was commanded this day that the Lord thy God is setting me on high because of what Jesus did. And I put faith in him and I now receive through Jesus. And so I get verses 1 through 14. I get every one of these blessings, but the curses are removed from me because Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. That is exactly Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. These are the curses of the law. And Christ redeemed me from it. So even though I don't do everything that I should do, I get verses 1 through 14 because of my faith in Jesus. And even when I do mess up and sin, I do not get verses 16 through 68, all of the curses, because Jesus has redeemed me from the curse. So I get the blessings because of what Jesus did, and I don't get the curse because Jesus has redeemed me from the curse of the law. Man, that is nearly too good to be true news. Man, this is awesome. If you understand this, it ought to just make joy and peace and liberty come alive in your life because God loves you. You didn't do anything to make Him love you. He loved you in that while you were yet a sinner. He commended His love towards you. And it's not based on your performance to maintain that love. God loves you now independent of your performance. That is wonderful, wonderful news. And so again, in verse 10, And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. There, there are about four times in this chapter that it says that sin took occasion by the commandment, the motions of sin which were by the law. They worked in me to bring forth fruit unto death. Just many different times. And plus, there's places in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, 
and then 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. All of these places are talking about that the law produced negative things. Law actually empowers sin. And this is what it's saying. Sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. This is the second time in just a few verses here that he says, am I saying that the law is bad? No, the law was perfect. The problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem with the law was us. We aren't perfect. To put imperfect people under a perfect standard is a recipe for condemnation and shame and guilt and failure. And the law, that's all it does is show you your imperfections. The Lord did not want us to know all of our imperfections. He, for 2,000 years, dealt with people in mercy, but eventually, because of His lack of punishment, people were just throwing the door open to sin, thinking, it doesn't matter how I live, and they were living like animals. So God gave the law to make sin come alive, to show us our unworthiness, so that we would turn from this self-righteousness and turn to Him and say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The purpose of the law is to reveal your sin unto you. The law was perfect. The law was holy. There's nothing wrong with the law, but to put a perfect standard on imperfect people is a recipe for disaster. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, uh, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. This again is telling you the purpose of the Old Testament law. It wasn't to save you. It wasn't to set you free from guilt and shame and bring you into relationship with God. The purpose of the law, it says right here, that sin might appear sin. There's a lot of people that have just convinced themselves that sin isn't wrong. You know, again, when I was a kid, I know I'm sounding like an old man here, but I, I guess I am an old man. But you know, when I was a kid, nobody bragged about being a homosexual. There were homosexuals. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember my dad died when I was 12 years old. And that very summer, after my dad died, there was a man in the church that wanted to take me camping. And, you know, my dad had been sick my whole life. He never threw baseball with me. He never did anything. He had been sick and invalid. And, uh, you know, he loved me. And I, I don't, I'm not complaining at all. But I'm just saying, my dad hadn't been to me what most kids, you know, dad was to them. And when he died, there was a man in the church that wanted to take me camping and do some of these things with me. And I just thought, this is awesome. I had never been camping in my life. And I thought this was wonderful. And I was so excited. Of course, I had to ask my mother about it. My mother asked the pastor. And I didn't understand it. They didn't explain it to me. But in he uh, hindsight, I can look back and you know what? This guy was a homosexual. And he was trying to take me out and take advantage of me. And the church knew about him and they told me no. And I was so disappointed. But you know what? He was a homosexual, but he was hiding it. But, and they didn't have parades and brag about it. But today, there are people that have been raised under a different standard. They've been taught that this is fine, that there's nothing wrong. 
Matter of fact, today, if you say that homosexuality is wrong and that it's damaging and that it's not good for you, you're called a bigot. People come out against you as being homophobic. You're a homo-hater and all of these kind of things. It, that's wrong. But see, there were people that didn't know what sin was. And so for those people, God gave the law. Thou shalt not. And some of those laws are about homosexuality and lesbianism and morality and things like this. And so there are people that don't know what sin is. And sometimes you need to use the law to reveal to them what sin is. This is the purpose of the law. That sin might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, talking about the law. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. The purpose of the law was to show you how sinful you were and to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would cry out to God for salvation. You know what? As long as a person thinks that they are good enough that they will be accepted with God based on their own goodness, then that's the person that the law was made for. You know, I've used this example. I can't remember when, but you might have heard this before. But I was actually in Houston, Texas one time holding a meeting in a holiday, and there was about two, three hundred people in this. This has been 20, 30 years ago. And I was ministering, and there was people walking by in the foyer outside. And one of them stopped and listened for a while, walked inside, stood inside. And then, after about ten minutes or so, he just started screaming and yelling at me. And I really couldn't even hear what he was saying. I tried to respond to it, and he was incoherent. He was either drunk or high on something, but he was not in control of himself. And he was disturbing the meeting. And so I just took authority over him and I commanded him. I said, I command you to sit down and shut up in the name of Jesus. And this guy just plopped right down. And I went on with my message. And after the message was over, I went back and talked to this guy. And you know what? I started telling him about the goodness of God and about the love of God. And I said, God loves you. God can set you free from whatever it is that's got you bound. I said, you don't have to live like this. There's a better life. And I was telling him about how God loved him and how all he had to do was believe and receive. And as I talked to him, this guy again, he, he was high on something. And he says, I don't need God. He says, I am God. <laughs> this guy started telling me how he was God. Now again, I don't believe he was all there. He was drunk or high on something. But... See, this is the kind of person that the law was made for. I started off telling him about the goodness of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's the goodness of God that brings man, leads man to salvation. So I started telling him about the goodness of God. But when he was so deceived... See, this right here, it talks about that sin deceived me. And it slew me. People who are like that, thinking that they're God thinking that, you know, there's many paths unto God, that all of these things are okay. These people are deceived. They don't understand that, you know, they cannot save themselves. And they need to come to the end of themselves. So what I did with this guy, I started off telling him about the goodness of God, but when he said, I am God, I took the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament, and I used it like a club on this guy. 
And I began to start saying, you sorry thing, you filthy rag. I used Isaiah 64, 6. All of your righteousness is like filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I took the word of God like a club and I just began to show this guy, you're a stink in the nostrils of God. Man, your righteousness is no good whatsoever. You need a savior. You can't save yourself. And this man who started out telling me, I am God, Within moments, I had him in tears, crying and saying, Oh, God, save me. See, that's the right use of the law. Let me turn over and read this passage to you out of Timothy. In First um, Timothy chapter 1, in verse 5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That means non-hypocritical, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. You know, this is old English. Vain jangling just means that they're saying foolish things. They're just talking. They're just flapping their their lips. They're talking just to hear themselves talk. But they it's not logical. It's what they're saying. It's just vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Boy, people who preach that you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I've had this yelled at me when I preach on this grace. And I've had people say, you can't do this. You've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I'll say, all right, if you've got to keep them, then tell me, what are the Ten Commandments? And did you know 90 or more percent of the people who say that they believe in the Ten Commandments can't even tell me what they are? It seems like that if you've got to live by the Ten Commandments, you ought to at least know what they are. Plus, there's not only Ten Commandments. There are thousands of commandments. There is a command that you can't wear a shirt that's part polyester and cotton. This shirt, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure that it's got a mixed blend of materials in it. I'm breaking the law. And on and on I could go. I mean, the law was down to every little thing. If you have a balcony on your house, you have to put a railing up. And if you don't do that and the person falls, you're guilty. It was your fault because you didn't give the adequate protection. If you see your neighbor's ox in a ditch and don't pull it out, you broke the law. And on and on and on and on and on you could go. People who are sitting there saying, I believe you've got to live by the law. You don't even know what the law is. For instance, I've already used that passage over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it says you have to observe to do all of the commandments, not some of them. People who are saying, you've got to keep the law. If you were to say, do you keep the law perfectly? Do you do everything just right? And they'd be the first one to say, well, no, I'm not perfect, but I do the best I can. But I'm better than this old, uh, you know, publican over here. I fast twice in a week. It's the Pharisee syndrome. See, they don't even know what they're saying. The Bible says you've got to keep all of the law. So people who preach the law, they don't even know what they are saying. And then in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man but for the lawless and disobedient, etc. And it goes on and talks about all of these sins. Who's a righteous man? This isn't talking about who lives the best. Righteousness is received by faith. You become righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus. When you get born again, you are a righteous man or a righteous woman. And the law is not made for you. The law was made for people to make sin appear sin. And that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That was the purpose of the law. In verse 
14. This is back in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. You know, again, this is in the King James. I could go to some other translations and probably try and put this into more modern terms that people might relate to. But one of the reasons I don't do that is because in an effort to update this into a modern language, they also share some truths in there that I believe are unscriptural. So even though this is a little wordy, it's awkward the way we don't talk this way anymore. I'm sticking with the King James just because I don't want to insert into it some of the modern theology that I totally disagree with. So stick with me. Work through this. It's worth the effort to be able to plod through this and to get what he's saying. In verse 17, he says, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, people take this to say, see, it's this sin nature. And I've already made a great point on this. I haven't got time to go back through it. But in Romans chapter 6, he showed that we are dead to sin. That sin has been destroyed, but it left behind a body and it left behind this unrenewed mind who was programmed with the wrong way of thinking, how to lust, how to do all of these kind of things. And so here, this isn't talking about your sin nature that is compelling you, but it's talking about what I call the residual old man. The old man, the old nature is dead and gone, but it left behind an unrenewed mind, bad memories, bad habits. You know, some of you, before you got born again, you smoked, you drank, you cussed, you did all kinds of things. And when you get born again, your nature has been changed. Now, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you might still have a profanity come out against the very one that you've committed your life to. But you know what? It is not your nature that compels you to do that. You were programmed that way. You spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years training yourself that when something bad happens, you respond with some profanity or blasphemy against God. And now that you're born again, you're going to still come up with some of those same things until you renew your mind. But you know, it doesn't take too many times of you doing something like that and you get embarrassed and say, God, how could I say this? This is completely contrary to this commitment I made to you. And it does, over a period of time, you get to where you change and you don't do that anymore. Why? Because all of a sudden your nature has now changed. No, your nature was taken away the moment you were born again, but you were programmed how to act a certain way. Many of you were programmed. You spent your whole life praising God for Fridays. You know, uh, TGIF, thank God it's Friday. And then Monday you talk about, oh, it's Blue Monday. And you spend 20, 30 years doing that. And you get born again over the weekend. But on Monday, if you have been up every Monday for the last 20 years talking about how bad it is that you got to get back into the routine you're going to wind up going through that same progression of things. And before you know it, by noon, all of a sudden you're depressed the way you have been for 20 years, and yet you got born again the day before. Why isn't it just automatically changed? It's because your nature has changed, but your mind is still going to function the way that you programmed it to function until you rechange it, or reprogram it. And there's things you can do. You know, I had one of my uh, staff come through one time, and I was in the break room, and... Uh, It was a young guy. He was only about 20 years old or maybe even younger than that. And he came through and he just ran in and goes, ta-da, T. 
TGIF. And I said, so what does TGIF mean? And he says, thank God it's Friday. And I said, what's so great about Friday? And he says, well, it's the end of the work week. I don't have to work tomorrow. I get uh, Saturday and Sunday off. And I said, do you not like working here? And <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden... He got serious at a heart attack and he started, uh, no, I love working here. He says, I, I like my job. I said, well, you don't act like you like your job. I said, you know what? There's a hundred people that would gladly take your job. I could get somebody to replace you. If you don't like working, I said, I can get, I can solve that problem right now and you can be off every day. And boy, this guy started back paddling. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. And of course I was playing with him. But my point is, see, that if you're one of those that, men, you're excited about Friday and, you know, first of all, you need to find God's will for your life. If you're in God's will, you ought to like what you're doing. You ought to love what you're doing. But you need to get rid of this mindset. But see, if you spent 20, 30, 40 years programming yourself and you live this cycle, then even though you're born again, you're going to wind up going through the same cycle because you programmed yourself to love uh, Fridays and hate Mondays. And you're going to continue to do that until you reprogram yourself. But you can change those things. It's liberating to find out that it's not your nature. When this is saying, it's not me doing it, but it's sin that dwells in me. This isn't talking about your sin nature because your sin nature has been dealt with. This is talking about the what I call the residual old man or the what's left of the old man. The teachings, the attitudes, the values that he placed in you. And you find this conflict. There is still a conflict in the Christian life. It's not just that the moment you're born again, instantly everything is perfect. Your motivations are perfect. Your memory is perfect. You forgot every wrong thing. You'll never use profanity. You'll never smoke. You'll never drink. You'll never do any of these things again. No, your nature is changed, but now you have to renew your mind and it takes effort. There is still a struggle, not because your nature, by nature you are a part devil, but no, it's because that part of you that was of the devil and born in sin instilled these things in your flesh, what the Bible calls the flesh, and you are going to continue to have some of these things until you renew them. But you aren't destined to a life of just constant struggle. You can renew yourself and overcome this. In verse 18, Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Now that's in uh, parentheses here. It is super important that you understand this. Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. This would have been an inaccurate statement if he would have just said, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. And sad to say, that's the way that the vast majority of Christians today think. The vast majority of Christians just sit there and say, well, I know I'm nothing. Without Christ, I can do nothing. They'll quote John chapter 15 where Jesus said, I believe it's verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. And they'll say, I can do nothing without Jesus. And they just live there. And you know what? That's true. Jesus said that. But in the new covenant, once you get born again, you aren't without Jesus. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You've been born again. You became a new person. And for the New Testament, born again Christian to say, in me there's no good thing, then you're wrong. Paul didn't say that. He said, for in me, I know that in, in me, and then parentheses, that is in my flesh, talking about the body and the soul, the mental, emotional part of you, not talking about your born-again spirit. In just your body and in your soul, 
you are not changed yet. You may be changing. You may be getting better than you were, but you aren't perfect yet. And compared to God's perfect standard, your flesh, that body and the unrenewed mind, your soul, is not perfect. And in it dwells no good thing. If I could go through here and just show you the number of times that he specifically mentioned not his spirit, but his flesh. Like in verse 14, he talks about, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. That's a reference to his physical body and his mental emotional part, not his spirit, because his spirit is spiritual. It is perfect. It's complete. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. That's true in your spirit, not in your physical body. So he says, but I am carnal. See, this is, this is a key to understanding this. Paul is not describing his life as this mature Christian who is just schizophrenic going back and forth. He is describing any person, whether it's a lost person or even a Christian, if you are just living out of your own self, if you are trying to live the Christian life by your own ability, it's impossible. The Christian life isn't difficult It's impossible. It's beyond man's ability. You can't do it in yourself, in your lost self or in your born again, saved self. You cannot do it based on your own power. You need the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. You have to live from the Spirit, not from your carnal self point. And so again, he said right here, I know that in me, parentheses, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is to present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now again, this isn't talking about the mature Apostle Paul who is just living a schizophrenic life and dealing with failure constantly. In contrast to this, Paul said in many places, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is one of them, where he says, be followers of me as I follow Christ. There was three or four times Paul said, follow me. He used himself as an example. And he is not telling people that you are supposed to live this life to where you just can't do what's right. And so I can't do what's right. I fail the good that I want to do. I can't do. Just follow me. No, he's describing what it would be like for him in himself. Here's one of the keys. And again, I'll say this later as I get into Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 7, the word spirit is only mentioned... One time, and I believe it was in verse, um, is either verse, is verse 6. He says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And the word spirit here isn't even referring to your born again spirit. It's not referring to a part of your anatomy. The word spirit can also mean mental disposition. When you tell somebody, that's the spirit, or you say, you got a great school spirit, you're talking about a great attitude. The word spirit can be used that way, and that's the way it's used in Romans chapter 7. So the word spirit, as referring to the born-again spirit, isn't even used in Romans chapter 7. This is talking about a person who is trying to relate to God, to serve God, to do the right thing, but just in your own physical effort, in your natural body, your willpower. You're trying to serve God. And it's describing the frustration and the complete inability to do that. But in contrast, Romans chapter 8 is one of the most victorious, positive chapters in the entire Bible, talking about that we can do all things and that God is just for us. 
And in contrast, in the book of Romans chapter 8, the word spirit as referring to the born again part of you is used over 20 times. I think it's either 21 or 27 times. So see, Romans 8 where it's talking about the spirit is victorious, powerful. Romans chapter 7 is frustrating. I'm trying to do the right things, but I can't do it. The good that I want to do, I fail to do. The bad that I don't want to do, I wind up doing it. That's describing a person who is just living out of themselves. So this isn't descriptive of the Apostle Paul's life as such. It's descriptive of his life if he was to be in the flesh and not in the spirit. It's descriptive of any person who is just trying to serve God because now, even if you're born again, your, your nature has been changed, but you in your physical self just cannot measure up to what God wants you to do. You've got to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's referring to. In verse 19, he says, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Again, I say based on Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, this isn't talking about the sin nature because it's been dealt with as has been so clearly stated, but it's talking about this residual sin nature, what the sin nature programmed and taught. And you just in your flesh, you're, you've experienced sin. You know, it's like if, you ex, if you've had a disease or something, you have a tendency towards that disease. You have a weakness in that area because you've been exposed to it once. And like if you had a cold or something, you may, it may be over now, but you're still weak. You were weakened by that. Well, all of us were weakened by sin and this sin nature and what it did. And in your flesh, you just cannot please God in your flesh. And it says that very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. In Romans chapter 7, verse 21, he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Again, see this is talking about the born again part of you. But I see another law in my members. Notice the terminology here. This isn't talking about in your spirit man. This is talking about out in your flesh. Again, the Bible calls the flesh your, your body and your unrenewed mind, your soul. But not your spirit. Your spirit has been born again. But there is a law in your members, out in this flesh, your physical body and your unrenewed mind. It is just a law. See, we've said before that the Lord delivered us from the law without, but now there's a law within. There is a mental attitude, a spirit, a disposition that was taught wrong by that sinful nature. And even though you may not have been exposed to the Old Testament law, there is this conscience, this religious uh, image on the inside that causes you to uh, come under this guilt and condemnation. So in verse 23, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Again, this isn't talking about the born again part of you. It isn't talking about the, the spirit part that you've got an old sin nature it's talking about out in your physical body, in your members, in your mind. And then he says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But he didn't leave it there. He goes on in verse 25 to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In other words, some people will just take this and stop in verse 24 and say, see, Paul was still struggling. Oh, he called himself a wretched man. Who's going to deliver him? He answers that in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul is not saying that he's just a wretched man and that he couldn't... He was a wretched man if you looked only at him separate from Christ. But in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Notice the emphasis on through Christ. Paul wasn't living by himself. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. That's talking about you're dead to this old man. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said he was crucified. He was dead to himself and now it was Christ living through him. See, that's what he's describing. He is, in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, he's describing the inability of flesh to serve God. And it doesn't matter if it's Paul's flesh, my flesh, or your flesh. Flesh cannot please God. You've got to move over into Christ and let Him live through you. So that like Paul said, it's not me living, but it's Christ living in me. So he says, So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, he's still under the influence of that sinful old man, not because the sin nature is there, but because of the unrenewed mind and the corruption that he had experienced. He's still in the process of renewing himself. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, I don't count myself to have apprehended. In other words, I haven't arrived, but I've left. I've said this often, that I haven't arrived, but I've left. That's talking about my flesh. My spirit has arrived. My spirit is perfect. My spirit is righteous and holy and pure, and it has the mind of Christ and His ability. In my little born-again spirit, I am as perfect and pure and complete as Jesus is. That's what the Bible says. And some people take offense at that because you think, I'm claiming this in my flesh, in my body, in my mind. No, I don't always act right. No, I don't always think correctly. But I can guarantee you my spirit is perfect. It's as perfect and pure as Jesus is. But my flesh hasn't arrived. I hadn't arrived, but it's left. It's getting better. I'm coming more under the control of the spirit. You know, I called a woman in Denver one time. And she answered the phone. And I said, this is Andrew Womack. I said, how are you? And she says, well... I'm weak in Him. And boy, when she said that, I thought, what in the world does that mean? So I asked her and she began to describe, like Paul said, when I am strong, then I'm weak. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know what that's describing? If you are living in your own self-confidence, your own self-righteousness, if you are living out of yourself, then you're weak. But when you quit and you recognize that, God, I just can't do this in myself. I'm not up to this. Oh, God, I need you. Then you're strong. When you depend upon the spirit, man, you're strong because it's perfect. But if you are living under your own wisdom and ability, you're weak. And it's really an accurate statement to say that, you know, that when you get into the Christian life, you don't get stronger and stronger and stronger as a Christian. What you do is recognize how, <coughs> how weak you are and you get weaker and weaker and weaker and you quit depending upon yourself and you draw upon God more and more and more.
Man, that's awesome. I know that went right over the heads of a lot of people, but that's exactly what Paul is describing. So in Romans chapter 8, remember I said this earlier, that in Romans chapter 7, there's only one time in verse 6 that the word spirit was used, and it wasn't referring to the born-again spirit. It was talking about a mental disposition, an attitude. In Romans chapter 8, there's over 20 times that the word spirit is used. So Romans chapter 7 is contrasting a person trying to serve God through their flesh, just grit their teeth, gut it out, and do things in your own human ability. That's not the way that God wants us to serve Him. Romans chapter 8 is talking about the Spirit, and it is describing victory like very few chapters in the Word of God do. And so it shows you a contrast. Romans 7 is showing how a person cannot please God in their flesh, this is to take away your self-righteousness, your self-confidence, and to make you utterly dependent upon God. Boy, that is a great place to be.